aren't you just a sight for sore eyes? Of all the movie and TV joints in all the towns and all the world, you walked into mine. How lovely. Come, sit. Let me pour you a drink before we begin the showing. You know, I think that this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Cheers. Here's looking at you, Phil. Well, hello. How are we today? Welcome back to Here's Looking at You Film, a podcast for the vintage cinephile with modern sensibilities. As always, I'm your host, Nikki, and I'm here to take you on a semi-deep dive with some of my favorite old movies and media of yesteryear. Today, we are going to be doing a very famous film. However, I know a lot of people that have not seen it. And for the month of October, I think this is one of the perfect films to discuss. Another Alfred Hitchcock classic, Psycho. Psycho was released in 1960 and is widely considered to be the first slasher film ever. And there was another movie that came out about six months before, but it was pretty much critically panned. So as far as being a mainstream success, Psycho is definitely the first slasher film that was successful. Now I will have stills from the film over on my Instagram at H-L-A-Y-F-Pod, but I'll run you through some of the people who are in the film just so you have an idea. Anthony Perkins played Norman Bates, uh, Janet Lee as Marion Crane, Vera Miles as Lila Crane, her sister, John Gavin as Sam Loomis, Martin Balsam as Arbogast, who's our private investigator, and a special uh, appearance by Pat Hitchcock as the receptionist Caroline. And of course, that is Alfred Hitchcock's daughter. And we loved her in this film. She's amazing. So Psycho is actually based on a book called Psycho that came out in 1959 by Robert Block. And Alfred Hitchcock's assistant read a review about this book and then told Alfie about it. And Alfie immediately went to buy the rights for the book. He bought the rights to the book for $9,500. And he went to Paramount and said, I want to make this film. They said, nope, we don't want anything to do with it. It's too gory. He said, all right, well, I'll do it on a lower budget, black and white, and I'll use the film crew that I use from my show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which we will also talk about later. And they were like, we still don't want anything to do with it. We're not paying you any money for this. So he said, okay, well, I will just foot the bill for it. Just give me 60% of the profits that you make and distribute it for me. So they finally decided to go with that deal. And Hitchcock had his assistant go out and buy every copy of the book that they could find so that nobody would find out about this film. And this was obviously pre-internet, pre-Amazon. So his assistant literally had to go out and find every bookstore that they could find, go find every copy of the psycho book that they could find so that nobody would find out about this film. That's how dedicated Alfred Hitchcock was to keeping this a secret. Okay, so let's get into this movie because we have so much to psychoanalyze. So our opening credits, of course, iconic soundtrack composed by Bernard Herrmann. Lots of eerie string arrangements. So because Paramount Studio wouldn't give Alfie any money, he was on a million dollar budget, his own money. Um, and because of that, Herrmann decided to go with a small string orchestra instead of the jazz ensemble that Hitchcock originally wanted. So if you imagine this movie with like jazz behind it, it would feel a little bit more like a detective film. That string orchestra gives it that creepy sound. So the budget, of course, also influenced Hitchcock's decision to shoot in black and white as well. But the black and white choice was also because of the infamous shower scene that we all 
well, most of us probably know about. We'll talk about that scene, of course, later. So after the opening credits, we open up to a wide scanning shot of the Phoenix skyline and we settle in on a building and push into a slightly open window about two or three inches open where we find Marion Crane and Sam Loomis. And they met up at a hotel on her lunch for a little steaks and bacon, you know what I'm talking about? And he's just starting to put on his clothes and she's still in her lingerie laying in bed. So just FYI for the time in 1960, this is a very risque and super sexy scene, right? Lingerie, yeah, that was like big for the time. So as she got dressed, she starts to allude to needing a more respectable relationship, one that doesn't involve meeting up midday in hotel rooms, but at her home with her sister and her mother's photo on the mantle. And and Sam says he really doesn't have the finances for respectability right now because he's so far in debt because of his ex-wife and his um, dad. So she asks if they can get married and he agrees, you know, we can at least meet at your house the next time I come to visit because he's from Fairvale, California. And of course she's in Phoenix, Arizona. So you could tell it's not just a booty call for them. He really likes her. It's just that he doesn't have the money to get married. And since they can't really get married right now, they have to have this weird premarital illicit affair. And the circumstances just suck. So after this, she goes back to her office and she's talking about how she has a headache, but it's one of those like, I'm real sad because my boo just left headaches. And we get our Hitchcock cameo. He's right outside of the office. And he's standing facing away from the camera and he has on a cowboy hat. Now, people said that the reason he did it like this was number one, because he wanted to be inconspicuous. But he also sort of wanted to be in the same scene that his daughter was in, which is kind of cute. So we see you, Alfie. Um, so the receptionist is played by Pat Hitchcock and she's like perfectly self-absorbed 60s receptionist. So Marion asks her if anybody called and she's like, oh, well, my husband called and then my mom called to see if my husband called. Oh, well, your sister called too and she's going to Tucson for the weekend. Like clearly that's all I wanted to know, but thank you, girl. But Marion is like so sweet and kind and she just treats it like regular conversation. She's not irritated at all. So in comes their boss with this dude, Tom Cassidy, and he's, ugh. so he's talking about his daughter getting married, but he's talking about a really creepy, like, it's just gross. And he sits on Marion's desk and he's flexing about how rich he is and flirting with her, but in like a really like, I can be your daddy kind of way, like real gross, asking her if he has, she has any problems that he can fix with money. Then he tells her like, oh, I don't ever carry around more money than I can afford to lose. So they work at a real estate office and he's there because he's buying a home for his daughter who is getting married. So he pulls out 40K in cash to pay for this house. Now, adjusted for inflation right now, that's about $370,000. So imagine somebody pulling out 370000 and just popping it on the table like this is what I got mm. so their boss does not like that and he asked him like can you please just pay with a check but he insists and he wants them to drink in the office to celebrate well it's a Friday and the boss asked Marion to please just take it to the bank safe deposit box for the weekend and they'll get him to write a check on Monday once he's sobered up a little bit so she goes back into the office a little bit later and says yeah I still have this headache I'd like to go ahead and go home and um, I'll drop the thing off at the bank and I'll see you guys on Monday. She goes home for the weekend. So she goes right home and starts packing a bag. 
and she's looking at that envelope of money on the bed and really considering if she should do this but then she's like fuck it and she grabs all her vital documents the money her suitcase and she dips so here we get our infamous hitchcock car shot every movie the main character gets a car shot. And I think that Hitchcock kind of believed that when we're in our car alone, your emotions read on your face even if you don't talk. So our main characters always get that car shot. So she's driving and she sees her boss crossing the street. And at first she waves real friendly like, but then she realizes she said she was supposed to be home. He also waves real friendly like, but then he realizes she says she's gonna be home. And he looks back at her a little confused. She's nervous, but she keeps on driving on through the night and eventually she gets tired so she pulls over to the side of the road for a nap she ends up sleeping through the night and she's still sleeping the next morning when um, a highway patrolman pulls up to make sure she's good because there's a car pulled over on the side of the road but he has this long creepy face and wears these dark aviator style glasses and he looks mad unsettling and the camera is always super close to his face so it just looks really disturbing so she wakes up, she sees him and immediately starts the car and tries to drive off, like doesn't even say anything to him, but he stops her and he starts asking her questions because she's acting suspicious and nervous and he asks for her license and she kind of like sneaks the money and her documents out of her purse to get her license out and once he checks them out, he just gives them back and goes to his car, doesn't say anything, but when she drives off, he starts to follow behind her in his car. So sis is nervous and she's watching her rear view mirror hard, but then he takes an exit and you can see her visibly relax. So now we're in Bakersfield, California, about 490 miles, about seven and a half hours away from Phoenix, Arizona. She goes to a cash for cars lot to trade in her car. And you know, car salesmen are always being car salesmen and being kind of pushy when they're trying to sell you a car. But she's really easy to sell to because she's just trying to get in and get out. And so he's a little suspicious because he doesn't really have to sell her. Meanwhile, the same cop from earlier pulls up across the street and gets out of his car and just leans against his car watching her. And she keeps looking at him over her shoulder because what is he doing there? So she finishes all of the paperwork and this cop now has fully pulled into the parking lot. And she he starts walking up on the car, but he's walking up really slow and she gets in her car fast and she tries to pull off so fast she almost leaves her bags in her old car. And she ends up pulling off before the cop can even come to talk to her. So she's now she's driving and it's getting darker. And we're hearing all these thoughts inside of her head and it's sort of like a fantasy of what she thinks that her boss and Mr. Cassidy and all these people are saying about her taking this money. So at first, while she's thinking about how disappointed her boss and the receptionist probably are, she looks conflicted and disappointed in herself. But then when she starts to think about Mr. Cassidy talking shit about her, all of a sudden she's like smiling, like she's kind of pleased with what she's done. So now it's raining really hard. Her vision is obstructed by headlights and heavy rain but she's barely able to spot this light coming from a motel, the Bates Motel. So now we're like 27 minutes into the movie and we're at the Bates Motel. So she pulls up, nobody's in the office, so she has to go back to the car, honk really loud to get somebody to come outside and that somebody is Norman Bates. 
And he checks her in and he asks her to sign into the book. And she puts down a fake name. She puts down Marie Samuels because her boyfriend's name is Sam and Marie is sort of short for Marion. So it's, you know, kind of her name, but not really. So she ex he explains that she probably must have veered off the main road because of the rain. And they don't get many guests at that hotel since they the city moved the highway away from where the hotel is. So he puts her in cabin one that's right next to the office and he helps her go in with her bags and he offers her this mini tour of this simple ass motel room. But he also opens the windows for her because he says it's a little stuffy in there. So since it's so late and the diner is about 15 miles away, he asks if she'd like to have sandwiches for dinner with him in the house. She says yes. So he's excited and he rushes to the house to get it ready. And she's nervously trying to figure out a way to hide this money just in case. And she finally decides to wrap it in a newspaper that she got at the used car lot. And she puts it on the nightstand just so it's sitting there like a regular newspaper. And right as she's doing that, she can hear from the house Norman's mother is yelling at him. Basically accusing him of trying to get some ass and calling Mary and all sorts of names. And she basically tells Norman he better not bring her in that house to eat her food. And his mom is his mom is just mean as fuck. Like it's messed up. So he comes back out with a tray of food. Marion meets him outside of her room and she apologizes for quote unquote getting him in trouble, but she invites him back into the room. And he looks kind of nervous and then like he doesn't want to go in the room with her. So then he invites her back to the office to eat instead in the parlor. Um, and she walks in and there's like hella stuffed birds. And she comments on how he must like birds. And he's like, not really. I mostly like stuffing things like taxidermy. So two things about this. Number one, earlier in the film, she was talking to Sam Loomis about how she wanted, didn't want to be meeting up in hotel rooms and she wanted to eat dinner in a respectable place. And it's really interesting that she was about to eat dinner with Norman in her hotel room, but he asked her to come back to his parlor, which is a more respectable place than a hotel room, right? The other interesting thing that um, is funny about his verbiage, he says... Um, he just likes stuffing birds. And if you think about the old slang for women, women were called birds. And if you say you like stuffing birds, that kind of sounds like an innuendo. But Norman is so sweet and gentle that you wouldn't read into that unless you sat back and thought about it for a while. So when they're talking about the taxidermy, he's kind of charming, clearly a soft boy. But then she asked him if he has any friends. And his answer is, a boy's best friend is his mother. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> so he asks her what she's running away from. And she asks him why he asked. And he says, people never run away from anything. But then he says, you know what I think? I think we're all in our private traps, clamped in them. And none of us can ever get out. We scratch and claw, but only at the air, only at each other. And for all that, we never budge an inch. So then they start talking about his mom. And he says that um, when she talks to him like he did earlier, he wants to yell at her or defy her. You know, he sounds kind of like a little boy. Like, that's what a little boy would say. I want to yell at my mom or I want to defy her when she yells at me like that. But he says he can't leave her because she's ill. Not physically, but mentally. Because she'd met a man some years back, but then when he died, it was too much of a loss for her and she had nothing left. 
And when Marion says, except you, in a very sweet, gentle way, he says, well, a son is a poor substitute for a lover. Mm. Then Marion suggests he puts her, quote, someplace. So my guy does not like that. And he says, people always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? Put her in someplace. People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. So this man is losing it, right? But he pulls it back. And he says he thought about it himself, honestly, putting her in a place. But she needs him specifically. But she just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. So she decides to go back to her room and get ready for bed. And she's mentally decided to go back to Phoenix and face the consequences for what she's done. Cool. He asks her if she can stay and talk a little longer, but she declines. And he's real nice about it and just lets her go. Now, um, I do... I don't want to get into too many like film facts while we're watching the movies, so to speak. But like, I do want to mention this because this is a really cool thing that Hitchcock does. So this is the scene where we sort of shift main characters. Um, Hitchcock uses a false protagonist in the first part of this movie. So we have Marion in the first part of this film. We've been following her now for about 35, 40 minutes. And now we're going to shift perspectives to who the focal character is. Now, previously, we typically stayed with Marion all the time. We would focus on her facial expressions, her sight line, her inner thoughts. At this point, when Marion goes to go back to her room, we stay in the room with Norman. And we can even see like a slight bit of longing in his face as she's leaving. So now we know we're in his head. And this is confirmed when we see him take a painting off the wall in the parlor and peer into cabin one through the hole in the wall while Marion takes her clothes off like a creep. So he, then he stomps aggressively to the main house, presumably to like confront his mother or yell at her or something, but he can't do it. He, I, he goes in the rooms, I mean, he goes into the kitchen and sits down, he just can't. So then we go back to Marion's room where we see her calculating how much is left from the 40K, but she's only spent 700 for the car. Um, and she rips up the paper that she was calculating on and she decides to flush it down the toilet. Now, fun fact, this is the first time in mainstream media movies anywhere that showed a toilet on camera. So this movie is risque for many reasons, but one of them is because it shows a toilet. So right after that, she decides to take a shower, you know, the shower. So we're 45 minutes into the movie. So she gets in, first shower seemingly in days, and she's smiling, almost like she's washing her sins away because she's decided to face her consequences. And the only sound we hear is running water. Suddenly, we see a shadow forming from the other side of the shower curtain. And Marion keeps showering, completely unaware. And curtain the curtain gets ripped back and like, oh, it, it's crazy. And Mother Shadow is revealed and she starts stabbing Marion repeatedly. And we get that iconic strain composition that sounds like murder. It's like, literally, it sounds like mur uh, the it's the murder sound. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. And interestingly enough, right, Hitchcock originally didn't want any music for the shower scene or any of the um, murder scenes in the film. But Bernard was like, nah, I got something for you. Like, you need this. And Alfred Hitchcock heard it 
and almost doubled his salary because he was like, oh, this boy knows what he's doing. Like, this is wild. They say that that scene took 78 shots and 52 cuts because obviously you can't show a naked woman. But in order to show um, how frantically she was trying to get away from the knife, they had to show different parts of her body, like her arms, her feet, her legs, um, her adjusting her shoulders. Uh, so 78 shots, 52 cuts to make this shower scene the most iconic, one of the most iconic scenes of all time. So the mother leaves very quickly and Marion is left sliding down the shower wall, scratching and clawing at the air, but never budging an inch. You remember that quote, right? But she dies real pretty, like just FYI. But so she finally slumps down dead as we watch her blood wash down the drain and we see her lifeless eyes. And the main characters that been with us, that we've been with for 45 whole minutes is gone, right? Finished. And the camera pans over to the newspaper on the table that's folded over the money, just subtly reminding us how she and also we got into this mess in the first place. And then we pan over to a shot of the main house and we hear Norman yelling, oh God, mother, blood, blood. <laughs> so he comes running out to cabin one. He sees Marion and he's horrified. He looks like he's about to cry, throw up, all sorts of things. But he realizes he has to clean up mother's mess. And he mops up the blood, he wraps up the body in the shower curtain, he takes her and all of her things, including the money that he doesn't even realize is there because it's folded up in this newspaper, and he takes all her things and just dumps them into the trunk of her car. He drives the car to the swamp nearby and pushes it in, and it almost stops sinking before it disappears under the water and it's just sticking up, but then it finishes and disappears. And this is probably my favorite part of the movie, and we'll talk about why later. Um, but anyway, after that, we jump to Sam Loomis's hardware shop in Fairville, where Marion's sister Lila has come looking for her to see if she's been with Sam, because that's where Marion was going to go find Sam. So he, of course, hasn't seen or heard from her either. She never got there. And here, they're also met by Arbogast, who is a private investigator hired by Mr. Cassidy to get his money back. They didn't want to involve the police yet, but they figured if they could just find her and get the money, they wouldn't have to prosecute. So since they all have a stake in this, Lila and Sam kind of hang back and they leave Arbogast to go do his PI work. And he ends up driving to every motel in town because he's sure she's somewhere around there. And after many stops, he finds his way to the base motel, says he almost didn't see it. And Norman is sitting outside. At first, Norman makes some small talk about tending to the hotel and it's rarely visited. And then once the PI reveals that he's not a guest, but he's actually looking for Marion, first, Norman pretends he has no idea who she is, even if as Arbogast tries to show him a photo. So after Arbogast finally asks to look in the guest book to see who may have signed in, he sees the name Marie Samuels and he compares the handwriting to handwriting sample that he has. He figures Marie Samuels, that's close enough to her name, that must be her. At this point, Norman starts stuttering over his words and getting nervous. And even at one point, he says, you know, I'm not lying. So now he claims he barely remembers her because the picture isn't that great and her hair was wet when he saw her, but she simply stopped in on a rainy night, got a room, slept, and left in the morning. Then he says he remembers the situation with the sandwiches and he stutters about her being in the parlor and making her sandwiches. But he says people, you know, just come and go. He can't remember. And Arbogast figures that she might be, he might be hiding her in one of the rooms. 
So he wants to walk through the cabins while Norman changes the sheets. And Norman is more than happy to have him because she's not there, obviously. But just as he's skipping over cabin one, because he don't want to go in there, Arbogast spots a shadow from the main house. And he asks if anybody's home, and Norman says no. But Arbogast says, I see a woman's shadow in there. Norman says, oh, well, that's my mother, but she's an invalid, so I kind of forgot she was there. Arbogast asks point blank if he's hiding Marion, either for money or just because she's making a fool out of him, you know, because she's so beautiful. Norman says, well, she may have fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother, Oh, which is the dumbest thing he could have said. So now Arbogast is sure that the mother has met her. And he wants to talk to the mom. But Norman is like, yo, you got to get a warrant for that. I'm not letting you in the house, bro, bro. Bye. So Arbogast dips and he heads to a phone booth where he calls Lila. He says he really didn't get much information other than she stayed there at the base motel for the night and left. But he feels like he really wants to talk to that mom. So he's going to try to go back and he'll be back to see them within the hour. So Buddy goes back. And he pulls up while Norman is checking the cabins. And he decides he's going to sneak his ass into the main house to talk to the mom. So he goes tiptoeing his ass up the stairs. And just as he gets to the top, mother comes from around that corner and knocks his ass down the stairs with a swift stab. Then when he hits the floor, she starts stabbing him even more. So now it's been three hours. And Arbogast said he was going to be back in an hour. So Lila is worried. So Sam wants to chill and wait a little bit. But Lila wants to go out and look for him. Sam says, you chill here, and I'll go out to the hotel and look. Um, he calls out for Arbogast at the hotel, doesn't get a response. He sees the shadow of the mother in the window, but doesn't get a response at the door. So um, he goes back to tell Lila he hasn't found anything, and he says, like, maybe Arbogast just left town because he found out something. So Lila doesn't believe that, and they decide to go see the sheriff. And they start running the story down and they mention the woman at the house and the sheriff's wife thinks that Norman got married at first. But when they mention his mother, she looks like mad confused. So they're explaining that they think that Marion came out there to see Sam and told the sheriff about the money. And the sheriff said the P.I. must have got a hot lead about Norman and went chasing after her. So Lila and Sam asked the sheriff to call Norman. And at first he says, like, it's way too late to call, but he decides to go ahead and do it. He calls and the Norman says, like, the P.I. came by and he asked a few questions and left. So she's, Lila says, well, did Arbogast ever go back to question the mother? The sheriff then reveals that Norman's mother died in a murder-suicide 10 years prior. And she, because she found out that her boyfriend was already married and she poisoned him and then herself. So Sam swears he saw her, Arbogast says he saw her, but the sheriff is mad confused about it. So... Then we go back to Norman's house. He goes upstairs and tells mother he needs to put her in the fruit cellar. She says she's not going back down there again, but he insists and he carries her frail, small body down the stairs and she's yelling and protesting. So the next morning, Lila and Sam meet the sheriff at the, after church and offer to go to the motel with him, but he said he went before church and didn't see anything. And they also think that Lila and Sam should just go ahead and get the police involved. But they decide among themselves that they're just going to go out there and pretend to be a married couple and look around. So when they get there, Norman tells them that they don't have to sign in. But Sam says that his trip is, quote unquote, 90 percent business and he's going to need receipts to sign in and he needs documentation and all sorts of stuff. But when Norman offers to get their bags, they don't have any. So Norman is a little bit suspicious. So while Sam is paying, Lila heads towards their cabin, but she stops quickly at cabin one to see if it's unlocked. 
And once she sees that it is, she walks towards their actual cabin, which is cabin 10, just as Norman walks outside and sees her walking away. So in the cabin, Lila comes to the conclusion that Norman must have stolen the money and is covering it up. And she thinks that Arbogast wouldn't have left town without letting them know that he was chasing a lead. So they go to search the grounds discreetly. And going back over to cabin one, they search for any sign of Marianne. And Lila happens to find a scrap of paper with something being added to or subtracted from 40K around the toilet. So thinking that this is proof that Norman knew about the money, they go to separate to look for more clues. And so Sam stops by the office to distract Norman while Lila heads to the house to try to find the mother. So she heads in and goes upstairs. Of course, there's nothing up there. But she sees a room that appears to belong to like an older woman and there's a compressed spot in the bed. She also finds a second room that looks like it still belongs to a child, but clearly the mother and Norman are the only two people that live in this house. Sam is talking to Norman, but he is not suave, so it comes off like he's angry and interrogating. So eventually he starts to ask like really angrily about the 40K and if his mother knows anything about it and he wants to talk to the mom. Suddenly Norman asks where the woman is that he was with. And Sam lunges at him, but then Norman grabs something and hits him over his head and knocks him out. So meanwhile in the house, Lila was headed out of the door, but she got scared into hiding on the basement steps when Norman ran in. So once Norman goes upstairs, she gets ready to leave, but she suddenly sees the fruit cellar door. So she gets down there, she starts creeping around, and she sees a woman sitting in a chair facing the wall. So she calls out for Mrs. Bates, but she doesn't get an answer. And when she gets to her and turns the chair around, she finds a dressed up, wilted, grotesque corpse with hollowed eyes, no eyes. Lila, so she starts screaming and in runs our boy Norman, like a madman, dressed in a woman's house dress and a gray wig with a bun coming at Lila with a knife. And Sam happens to run in behind him just in time and he tackles the knife out of Norman's hands. So. At the police station, we get this long-ass speech, and I'm going to try to paraphrase it. So, the psychologist reveals that Norman had a really close relationship with his mom as a kid, but once she met that guy that she was with, he felt he was being replaced. So, Norman actually killed his mom and the boyfriend himself, but because he couldn't handle the grief of losing his mother, he kept her body in the house. And then he also took her personality on in his head. So he was half her, but she would frequently take over and he would just black out completely. So they said that Norman was never only Norman, but the mother was often only the mother. So he had this sort of incestuously jealous relationship with his mother and was jealous of his mother's boyfriend. So his brain assumed that his mother must feel the same way about him. So whenever he has any lustful feelings towards a woman, the mother needs to get rid of them. And so getting rid of Arbogast was just to preserve the secret, but there had been other women before Marion that met her same fate because of his feelings towards him. And we finally get to see Norman at the end, presumably like taken over completely by the mother. And she was essentially who came forward and told the whole story psychologically or whatever. So now she's nagging at Norman in his head and he's just sitting and listening. But then she was like, yeah, they'll see I didn't do any of this. This was all you. They're going to see me as harmless. And then a fly lands on Norman's hand and we hear mother in his head saying that she won't even swat the fly. And so the guards will see her and they'll say, oh, she wouldn't even harm a fly. And then he gets the most terrifyingly 
chilling smile across his face. And then his face is superimposed with the shadow of his mom's skull. And finally, we see Marion's car being pulled from the swamp. And that's how the movie ends. Now, my thoughts. Okay. There are a lot of theories about what this movie's about. Um, people often talk about how the main house has three different levels, which represent the super ego, the ego, and the id. Um, there's a lot of theories about mirrors and water and what they have to do with the movie, but I'm going to give y'all my little rundown of, the, of what I think it is. This movie takes us on a descent into a depravity and degeneracy by building our trust with this false protagonist, y'all. Like, it's crazy, and we don't even realize that it's happening. So, first, let me just mention that Hitchcock banned people from ent entering the theater after the movie started. So, you would have to be there in advance to buy your tickets and be in the seat when the credits started rolling. Otherwise, you were not getting in because he believed that audiences had to be there from the very beginning. Otherwise, they would lose the initial moment of meeting Marion for the first time and lose that initial sympathy. So at the beginning of the movie, like I said, we start off zooming into this cracked window, sort of like a peeping Tom. But the people are so attractive and we're watching a film and they really shouldn't be meeting in this like illicit place anyway. So it's okay. And then we're presented with theft. But Mr. Cassidy was so rude and gross. And we know what Marion is using the money for because she's in love and she wants to help Sam. So we're still on her side here. And just to nudge us onto her side even more, we're presented with this annoying um, traffic cop that's following her around for seemingly no reason. He doesn't know about the money. So why is he bothering her? Yes, she's committed a crime, but he has no reason to think she has. Even as she starts spending the stolen money and changing out her vehicle to remain hidden, we want her to get away. We want them we want everyone to leave her alone and allow her to get to Fairville. So by the time we arrive at the Bates Motel, we're bought into this idea of crime with good intention or harmless criminal acts, right? So after Norman meets Marion and we see Norman peeping into Marion's room, it almost feels natural to us because we did the same thing at the beginning of the film, didn't we? We peeped in on Marion and Sam, so why can't he peep in on her? Now, because she's had this sympathetic, almost maternal moment with him and we've watched him peep in on her just like we peeped in on her, we have no choice but to sympathize with Norman because we can relate to him. And after mother commits the crime and he comes in to clean up after mother's crime, we're not horrified. Instead, we're with him looking meticulously for any stains, any left behind signs as he tidies up and wipes things down with the towel and mops up the blood and puts everything into the trunk. We're looking meticulously around, hoping he doesn't leave anything behind. And then, just to prove how deep in we really are into these crimes, Hitchcock gives us that scene with the car, momentarily making us think that Norman may be caught if that car doesn't sink into the swamp. That we may be caught if that car doesn't sink into the swamp. And the gross relief that we get when that car finally disappears underneath the water and we don't see it anymore, 
it's such a strange feeling because we know who's in that car. We know why he's sinking that car. But somehow, this person that we followed for 45 minutes, that we've sympathized with for 45 minutes, all of a sudden, we just stopped caring about them because Norman came into the picture. Even when Arbogast comes to visit him, his situation mirrors Marion's situation. Marion is presented with this cop who will not leave her alone. And she just wants to get away. She just wants to go off into the sunset. When Arbogast comes to visit Norman and is looking for Marion, yes, we know that Norman did it. Yes, we know where Marion is. But we're wondering why Arbogast just won't leave him alone. Why he keeps asking questions. It's a hotel. People come and go all the time. Why is he so insistent that Marion must have been there? Why is he so insistent on talking to his mother? Even though we know he committed a crime. We're sympathetic to him because we don't understand why these people are bothering him. It's not until the end when we start to sympathize with Lila and Sam that we're drawn back onto the good side. But for most of the film, we are on the side of the criminal. We're on the side of a killer. Now this was one of Hitchcock's later works and it did get mixed critical acclaim, but it was one of the best films as far as the box office went. Um, his no late attendance rule had people literally lined up around the corner waiting to get into this movie. Also, um, the Hollywood Reporter and I think another uh, magazine revealed the plot of this film two months before it came out, even though he did everything that he could to hide the plot from people. But people were still so interested and in, intrigued in the subject matter. They came out to see it in droves and he got that money back that he's put into the movie by miles. So normally I would say that if you just want to listen to me talk about it, it's fine. But I do actually recommend going to watch this movie. It's a classic. Um, the acting is amazing. The cinematography is great. And for the time, the movie was innovative. I mean, it's still innovative. And it has some of the most classic scenes you've ever seen in cinema, including the Norman Bates reveal and, of course, that very iconic shower scene. As always, I believe it is available for rent on many of the streaming platforms that allow you to rent things, but I was able to also find this on Showtime On Demand, so if you are have Showtime and it is part of your package, you may be able to watch it at no additional charge. And that, my friends, is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. Um, as always, uh, my socials and information will be in the show notes. If you want to email me, uh, my email is here's looking podcast. That's H E R E S L O O K I N P O D C A S T at gmail.com. Uh, my Instagram is H L A Y F pod. And, um, I also have a Twitter handle, which I think is Nikki 
film underscore Nikki. That's the Twitter handle. So um, please go and follow me there. Um, I'll be posting a little bit about the podcast, posting some movie facts as well. And hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Next week, we are going to be back with a super slasher film from the 80s. Um, This is going to be one of the later films that we do, but I promise you it will not disappoint. I'm kind of terrified to even watch it because uh, it's iconic, but in some of the worst ways possible. So we will be back next week with a slasher film for that ass. But until I see you, if I don't see you, Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Cheers.